Elvis, thank you so much for making the time to be on Flute Unscripted. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. I've been following your podcast actually from the very beginning. Oh, wow. Very yeah. honored. <laughs> and now full circle, you're here. Oh, I know. <laughs> I saw that you recently became a U.S. citizen. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. That was a um, long 13-year process. But, wow. um, we, we're there in the end. We actually applied for our passports last Wednesday. So we're How do you anxiously feel? waiting for our new blue travel books in the mail. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you feel different? You know, I kind of do, actually. Really? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I didn't feel different when I turned 21 or, you know, like, any other major life milestone didn't really affect me, but this does kind of actually feel different. It feels a little more like with the, with the South African passport, there's a lot of restrictions, especially in terms of travel, um, which I think a lot of U.S. citizens don't necessarily know about. You know, um, if I wanted to go anywhere in the world, which I tend to travel quite a bit before yes, the pandemic, yeah. <laughs> um, it becomes tricky because you have to go to that country's consulate apply for a visa and it's all this paperwork that you have to like find and you know it's it's a real pain so um yeah it's it's feels sort of freeing in a way that i have a passport now that can just i can travel anywhere and everywhere i want to for well you, most places right do you uh, go back to south africa often does it feel like home now here uh yeah so we've been living here since 2007 um in Massachusetts for the last four years so um we we always have a plan to go back to South Africa every other summer mm -hmm. um we were supposed to go last summer that didn't pan out um so I think we're gonna go for a really long stretch next summer I think we're just gonna do like a two-month trip you know just um to catch up with anybody and everybody that wants to see us I guess well, it sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. I mean, what is it uh, like now to have roots in Massachusetts, uh, teaching there at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst? And can you talk about kind of how you got here? So your, your start in South Africa and your path to where you are today. Yeah. Um, so I am so thankful for the experience that I had um, for multiple reasons growing up in South Africa. But um, one of them is for the professional experience um, that I was sort of afforded or given um, from a very young age, because there are fewer professional flute players. Um, so opportunities just came a little bit easier, you know? Um, so by the time I graduated with my undergraduate degree and moved to the US, there were things I felt like I needed to catch up on, <laughs> um, like technical facility and sound control and things like that. Um, but then sort of professional experience, I really thought that I had sort of like um, a leg up to some of my peers, you know, which I was really incredibly grateful for because what's the saying? You can't buy experience, you know? Um, and yeah, so I, by the time I moved to, um, the US, that would make me 21, 22. Um, you know, I've subbed and played principal all the way down to piccolo with all the professional orchestras or most of them in South Africa. Um, you know, just had a bunch of chamber music experience, um, which I, and with my students now, I, I find that it's hard for them to yeah. get that, 
you know, um, and especially too when you're applying for an orchestra job or there, it's hard to to um, pad the resume. So um, I was really really thankful for that, um, and so I came. But with that said, it also felt very limiting, you know. Um, and so I always had this idea of moving to the US. Um, and then I went to the Jeannie Baxter International Masterclasses in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. Um, that's where I met Christina Jennings, my teacher at CU Boulder. Um, and so in 2007. For just a little bit of time. Yeah. <laughs> you did your master's and uh, you went on with her too. Yeah. I did my master's and BMA at CU yeah. Boulder. Um, we just really worked well together and um, I actually spoke with her on the phone today. Like it's, oh, a, nice. yeah, it's, I'm really thankful to have her as a mentor and that I can call her up and ask for advice if I need it. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I spent, I did my master's in three years at CU Boulder, took a year off. I went back for my DMA, um, graduated in 2014. Um, and all that time I was just sort of freelancing in Denver and subbed with the Colorado Symphony. Um, in that time, I became principal flute with Boulder Chamber Orchestra. Um, also was part of, or still am, we just don't have any concerts on the books right now. Um, the Antero Winds, which is a professional woodwind quintet um, that used to have a residency with the Aspen Music Festival. That was wonderful. Um, yeah, so I was just sort of freelancing, going to school, working, just doing my thing in Colorado. And then um, as the usual, I, I always knew I wanted to be a, a college teacher versus a um, orchestral musician. And that was, yeah, that was always very clear to me, that path. Um, and because I really do love, love teaching. Um, I love performing too, but there's, there's sort of that intimacy around teaching that I really enjoy. Um, and so, yeah, so I applied for a few jobs, got really close two or three times. Um, so it was one of the three or four finalists that got flown out to the campus. Um, and yeah, and then uh, the University of Massachusetts job um, opened up and um, that's how I landed here. And what's an, a fun fact is that my wife and I were just sort of ready to get out of Colorado because it was sort of really developing. And, um, you know, we knew we had some capital in our house because it was just by the time we, we bought our house, marijuana became legal and Google moved into town. And, you know, like there was this whole sort of like, yeah, booming happening. So we knew we had some capital in our house. So we, um, we thought, okay, well, if I don't get this job at UMass Amherst, we're going to move to Honolulu and open a coffee shop. That was, that was the backup plan. Um, and then I got the job at UMass. So now we'll never. <laughs> Massachusetts, Honolulu, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so now we will never know the island lifestyle. Yeah, that's fine. That like, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, vacation homes are a thing, so maybe uh, that's always in your future. Yeah, one can dream, right? right. There's this great that HGTV is like where they show all those Hawaiian homes. What's the saying? Like you don't have to. Um, what's it with Hawaii? Like you just really have to want it. You know, <laughs> it's not like you don't need to be able to afford it. You just really have to want it. Yeah. Or people that want the beachfront home with, with a water view for, you know, for small pennies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, could you talk a little bit more about uh, where your passion for humanitarian issues come from? Because I think that's another big pillar of, things that you're involved in. I mean, even if you go to your website, you're always really active. And um, you did do that campaign for hashtag we bring flowers. 
But I think that's just, you know, a part of a lot of the stuff you've done. So where does that come from? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned one of the things I'm really grateful for growing up in South Africa is, um, you know, you have this nickname as the Rainbow Nation. Um, and it's an amazing place to grow up. And um, so we have like 11 official languages, right? Um, so it's so diverse um, and multicultural um, and just a vibrant, rich country. Um, and so I think what made a real impression on me is I sang in a youth choir um, at the inauguration of Nelson Mandela when apartheid ended and democracy started. Yeah. And I think I was 10 or 11 at that point. Um, and it was just such a, um, I mean, joyous doesn't really encapture it right? or, or sort of capture it. It was, it was joyous, but it was also hopeful. Whatever the word, the word is when you blend joyous and hopeful together, that's, <laughs> that's the word I'm looking for. But um, it's, there was just so much optimism and energy around um, this amazing change, right? Um, and I was lucky that I was sort of the first generation that really experienced the full benefits of um, democracy. Um, and also then the flip side of that is sort of having parents and grandparents that that, that was not the case for, right? right. Um, and sort of like having those conversations of, of the difference between the two scenarios. Yeah. Um, so I think that planted a seed early on. Um, and yeah, so We Bring Flowers project is Something I did when, I mean, another shooting happened two weeks ago in Boulder. Yeah. But um, that was when mass shootings was really sort of only beginning. Um, and there was this mass shooting in France that I was really sort of struggling with emotionally. And I saw this interview of a French reporter interviewing a five-year-old boy and the boy was sort of verbalizing with, to his dad that now they're gonna have to leave Paris. There's bad guys everywhere. And um, he's really scared to be in Paris. And the dad said, well, do you see all these people bringing flowers and candles as vigils? Um, that is something that much more powerful than any weapon or any sense of violence could ever be. So I just found that really, I mean, such a great parenting moment, but also such a beautiful thought of that, something um, like a flower can have so much more power than an assault rifle, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so, so the idea was that, because like I said, I was struggling with it personally. And so I thought, well, I kind of want to see how composers deal with this sort of as a way to heal and work through it. Um, and so I deliberately um, commissioned a wide variety of composers sort of that belong to the LGBTQIA plus community, um, a South African com um, composer that's black, um, a female composer, a composer that lives in the deep south. Um, I just really kind of want to see how people with, from various different backgrounds um, and sort of just environments that they that they live in every day, sort of how how they handle the situation. And so. Um, the work that came out of that is is great. I'm actually going to do um, 
a work from that project on the recital for Flutes in Irving, New York. <laughs> That's okay. coming. Um, yeah, and so the, the I guess the, the work that most people probably know about is um, Court Dances by Amanda Harbour because I did a huge um, consortium commission for it. Um, and people from Brazil and China and the US and um, contributed. It's published by Presser, it's a great piece. Um, and I also, what I like about it is sort of the, because the, instruct, the instructions to the composers were either compose something that sort of directly revolt against or confront um, societal violence. And um, Amanda sort of used physical exercise, um, sort of racquetball and things. So it's very high energy and it doesn't, that's also what I liked about it. Um, not any of the pieces sound the same. Um, none, there's like maybe one out of the bunch that, that seem really somber and dark, um, but also sort of like how all of these pieces have sort of this energetic or sense of optimism um, around them. Do you, do you immediately go to that place with music when something, when something tragic happens or these um, you know, big issues or big traumas happen in our lives? I mean, is that an instantaneous thing that you turn to is music or do you feel like you have a hard time kind of seeing its relevance at first? Like this seems insignificant in all of the problems of the world. That's a very, very good question. Um, I think, I think this is why I did the pro the the, the um, project because I had a hard time actually finding that solace and that comfort in music because it somehow felt bigger than music. <laughs> um, so I think actually that's why because I wanted to sort of draw that connection and I couldn't find it. Yeah, um, which is I think probably what a lot of people felt, especially over this last year too. Yeah. It's, it's, we've had a year with the pandemic, so I think people have come back around, but um, I know it was a hard for a lot of people to find solace in music and to, to see the point in it, maybe. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's some people that felt that way for a little bit of time. Yeah, well, and if a, if a large part of your identity is wrapped up in being a bassoonist or being a violinist or, and all of that goes away, it, um, yeah, yeah it, it, I'm, I can imagine it can feel really, really frightening, I guess. I wanted to kind of delve into your, your studio too. Uh, as you had already mentioned, you're really passionate about teaching. You take it really seriously, but you seem like a very fun teacher too. <laughs> <laughs> you really, uh, you advocate for inclusivity, which is really great and kind of a sense of belonging. Um, so, you know, what do you think the tools are that you give your students that, that help them move on into careers after they graduate? Yeah. Um... You know, it's, I think the number one thing is acknowledging that you're not going to get it right always <laughs> in terms of being inclusive and giving everybody a voice and you try your best, but it's never going to be perfect, even though you want to tell yourself that it is. And I've had, um, even after trying my best, I've had a few moments where I was like, where I sort of realized um, or where a student said something where I thought like, oh, I didn't know that was happening, you know, <laughs> or that was, and so you try your best, but I think if you just start from a place that everybody's trying, then you're already ahead. Um, try Rather than sort of pretending that you're this like little perfect <laughs> bubble, right? Um, and is then it, I- Is it hard to balance though, that sense of um, like 
fostering community and support and demanding excellence. I think that's a hard. Yeah, but you know, I think also, and this is, I guess, in general, how I live my life. Like, I don't think avoidance is good in any shape, way, you know. Um, it's, I think if you sort of avoid uncomfortable topics um, or then it actually amplifies uncomfortable topics, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it, the perfect example, I think, is we had a discussion recently about, you know, with all the attacks on um, Asians recently in Atlanta. Um, and there are two people in my studio that's Asian and the, the music department at UMass did a um, big meeting um, to just sort of talk about the climate in the department. Um, and something one of my students said that really is still, that I'm still sort of mulling over is how um, she said, it's really painful when um, somebody, you know, programs an entire program of BIPOC composers, but then in a social situation, when um, a microaggression arises, then they don't stand up or speak up um, for the issues that they believe in, right? Yeah. Um, and so sort of the way I interpreted that was, it was like, it's almost there, there's this, all this work that's happening and all this sort of the needle is definitely shifting and um, all this awareness for social change and justice um, is of course incredible and wonderful. Um, but the, when she said that, I, I thought, well, I, I have this fear that it's sort of now becoming a, like a hip trend rather than a, you know, like I, I, I was really hopeful in that moment that people really understand the, the gravity of the situation, yeah. you know? Um, and so I just think, because that's sort of the environment that I grew up in, right? Like if you, if you live through the end of apartheid, they're like those conversations become normal right mm -hmm. and conversations are only hard if you don't have them often if you if the more you avoid a certain topic the harder it becomes to talk about it right mm -hmm. um and so i guess my answer is like how do i foster that is like i just i it's not that every studio class we talk about race but i do want to <laughs> you know i i do um encourage like when my students play in studio class, they have to talk about the composer in detail, right? And so um, let's say for instance, um, somebody talks about a composer of color, um, like just saying this is a composer of color is not gonna cut it for me, right? Yeah. Like I really want them to sort of talk about their background, where they came from, what, you know, that it, that it becomes more of a normalized um, yeah. topic. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question. I kind of get away yeah. off. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, you guys are really close too. I mean, you're you're close with your studio. You do lots of things outside of just flute playing. Um, you guys work out together. Is this true? Uh, <laughs> and you're really active. I mean, you talked about you're pretty open about how you had some scary injuries, and they kind of opened your eyes to how it's really important to take care of ourselves as performers. We're kind of like athletes. Um, and you've kind of ventured into chiropractic care, acupuncture, you've done a triathlon, right? Yep. <laughs> Making everyone feel like slackers. Uh, <laughs> so I guess how has that really helped you in your playing? And, you know, how do you make sure that your students have access to stuff like that? Because that kind of care is not, it's almost like a privilege for, for most of us. 
Yeah. Um, it's funny you said it because I'm about to go out for, on a bike ride after you and I speak because I'm busy training for a full Ironman this summer in July. Wow. Um, I'm hoping it'll happen, but we'll see. It was canceled last year. But the um, yes, so so to go back a little bit, when I in high school I had a piano teacher who said to me once that if um, you know like you should basically practice until it really hurts between your shoulder blades, right? Like otherwise you're, and I'm like, okay. Um, In hindsight, that was terrible advice, but um, you know, if, if you're a gullible middle schooler, you kind of do as you're told, right? Um, So that sort of continued all the way through college is that I just kind of thought, well, you know, if I'm not pushing and playing to the point where it hurts, I haven't sort of done my work for the day, right? Um, and so when I went to CU Boulder, they've got a wonderful, um, musician's health initiative department. It's, it's not just sort of like a afterthought. It's a real separate wing of their new building now. Right. And they've got Alexander technique and body mapping, and they partnered with the Denver school of massage. So you can sign up for a free massage every Thursday. Right. So, um, I, yeah, so I, I ventured into all of, or dipped my toes into all of those sort of things. Um, But then when I graduated with my master's, my right shoulder blade was basically just fused, right? It was so, I couldn't move it, it was so sore. Um, To the point where I thought like, okay, I'm gonna have to switch careers here because I don't think my body can sustain this for an entire career. Um, And so I happened to go to this um, festival and there was a chiropractor there that did the, the scans, you know, of inflammation. And he basically did a scan and said, yeah, we're not going to do anything here um, at my tent, but please come to my office so I can tell you how bizarrely messed up you are. Um, So he took x-rays. My spine was off by 17 degrees. I had three degrees scoliosis. Um, Just a lot of things wrong right now. Who who knows what came first? It's because I am six foot five. I did grow very, um, I grew a lot in a very short amount of time. and so who knows sort of what influenced what but yeah so i went on this whole journey with him went two or three times a week got traction if you don't know what traction is you basically hang with your head off the table with weights attached to your head Um, and it just basically resets your spine um and i became much better um and so then i eventually like from there i sort of got because boulder colorado is a great place for body work of any sort so yeah, you, you name it. Like I've done roster stretching, rolfing, uh, chiropractic care. Um, yeah, I mean, like anybody work you can think of, cranial sacral therapy, like anything you can think of, I've done. Um, and that's all wonderful. And you learn a little bit from each and every, every one of those disciplines. Um, but the thing, and that's what I, so you mentioned we work out together as a studio. It's not every week. It's like, instead of having a cake at the end of the semester, I just take them all to um, this workout program, F45 that I belong to, which is like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, and that's kind of actually my first question when somebody comes in and I'm still actively working with Lee Pearson on body mapping. um, And I feel like I'm making strides of progress on a week to week basis, basis, right? but that is one of the first questions I ask my students when they come in and they say, oh, this is sore, this hurts. This, I ask them like, well, how active are you, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying you have to be an Olympic bodybuilder. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if, you're, if the only movement you're doing 
is movement that goes this way, right? Like that cannot be healthy right. um, for your body. Um, yeah, and so I just, the, the, I've always had this dream of doing a full Ironman and then kind of just became, sort of dipped my toes in the water with it. And I fell in love with swimming because swimming is just like flute playing. It's so technical. Um, and just, you have to be so aware of every movement of your body. Um, it's more about technique than the actual sport. Um, and I, there's a great swim coach here in the Valley and yeah. So, so it sort of just snowballed, I guess. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I do think it is very important to not just for the lungs, but for your just general health and your body wellness. I think it is important to just stay active and keep moving. Yep. Well, and then on the other side of things, you have physical health and then your mental health. That's another thing that you've uh, been open about is that you had a lot of performance anxiety um, and you sought the help of some coaches and, you know. Yeah. So, um, so fun fact, there is a, um, I think it was Stanford, but you have to double check me on that. Um, I just released or released a study about a year or two ago about um, PTSD um, in war veterans. And the thing that they found that was most helpful with treating PTSD, this is above any medication, above any other treatment, is very intense cardiovascular exercise, um, which I found fascinating. Um, so yes, I think that does play a role in it too. But um, so as far as the performance anxiety goes, um, the I a couple of years ago, I, I felt like when I had performances, I it took me a while to get into the performance, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not necessarily that I was anxious in, in a certain way that some people are like with shaking and being short of breath and, um, you know, sweating profusely. Like that is, that was sort of not how it manifested for me. For me, it was more sort of like disassociation in a way. Um, it's almost like I sort of like didn't care. Yeah. I like, yeah, I had this like, all right, I'm here, like, like sort of this blasé attitude until about sort of like 10, 15 minutes into the concert when I sort of would really sort of get into it, right? Um, so I just always felt like the first 10 or 15 minutes was really lackluster um, in my, in my performances. Um, yeah, so I, I went to Helen Spielmann, um, did a bunch of work with her um and just really you know like i mean this idea of positive affirmations um is really powerful and it's funny because when people hear that word um you know and I, when i talk about this to my students the usual response is sort of like well i can't just tell myself i'm wonderful when i don't think i'm wonderful right um and that is the beauty of positive affirmations it's not it's not fooling yourself right it's coming up with um an affirmation that you believe is actually 100% true. And it sort of, it replaces that negative thought, right? Um, because our brains are wired, eight out of 10 thoughts are negative, whether it is like, I wish these, like this pancake was, or whatever, this donut was sweeter. These pants were a little bit looser. These like, you know, like, but we're, we're geared towards negativity, right? Um, but it's also, um, you know, neuroscience is, a fascinating topic that I'm really interested in. And it's, you can really rewire your entire brain, which is really fascinating and interesting. Yeah. There's a, have you read that book? You are a badass. No, I'm going to. Yeah. You should, yeah. I just read that recently. And it's kind of, there's a lot of it is kind of along the same lines of we construct our own realities. Uh, yeah. And what we tell ourselves kind of becomes reality. 
And the more you tell yourself something, the more you, you know, you start to believe it. And then it does manifest itself just because, uh, yeah, you're, you're open to it instead of always saying the negative thoughts all the time. Yeah. You check it out. It's right yeah. along those lines. Or oh, right absolutely. The studio. <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> um, so have you been busy at all this last year with any additional projects? Um, well, I've been busy like um, homeschooling my third grader, so I can I can do the multiplication tables like cold at any time of day. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, I'm working on on a few projects. The one I'm really excited about is this is actually more research based than performance based, but um, I received a grant. Um, very often in master classes that I would attend the. Um, the master or the person teaching um, would refer to energy zones or chakras or you know um, parts of the body to activate or or deactivate or um, and I'm always fascinated by that because it always seems to have an an influence but I'm I'm always interested in if that's sort of like a placebo effect or if yeah. it's um, if there's actually real science behind it right so um, I got a grant where where I um, purchased um, hand-beaten Tibetan singing bowls each, for each chakra of the body. Mm. Um, and I am partnering up with a professor in the sciences and I'm basically gonna <laughs> um, use my students as lab rats um, <laughs> and expose them you know, like it'll be a double blind study, like, you know, it'll, it'll be hooked up to a bunch of different things. And, um, but just kind of expose them to, without telling them this is your heart chakra or this is your crown chakra, right? Like just exposing them to it, having them play a tone, measuring sort of the amplitude, the decibel level, the amount of time they can hold it, um, then exposing them to a certain sound if from the singing bowl for a certain amount of time, um, you know, I think there's a commission somewhere in there for a... Yeah, exactly. Well, you're, you read my mind. There is, yeah. that's part of, that's sort of the next step is like... Very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so that's sort of, it's more research-based, I guess, what I'm sort of doing next. But um, I'm excited about it. And you had a, another big project kind of to wrap up this year or, or be released within the last year. This is your um, Naxos recording project. Yeah, um, you've recorded all of Castored's uh, flute works. That took the span of what three, three yes, years? Yes, three and a half, almost four years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, what was that editing process like? How did your playing change from like day one of recording versus close to release date? Yeah. Um... <laughs> That was maybe that's why I'm doing more research-based things for a while. Um, Take a break. <laughs> you know, there. It's been something I've been wanting to do for a really long time, right? Um, and it's just I fell in love with this composer. I we all know the first time I encountered Castaned um, was in my senior year of my undergraduate, where. I got assigned to play the uh, flute Cons, the flute quartet that we all know and love, right? Um, and then a few years later um, in Boulder, the quintet I mentioned earlier, we played his uh, quintet and I liked that just as much. Um, and so over the years, as I've gone to the conventions and I've 
accumulated all the scores and after a while i literally had like a stack of custard red scores this thing that i've just never played and i've i've i was always curious about um and then after researching him some more i also found out that he that he actually composed a piece for the premier prix um exam um at the paris conservatory so then that sort of like piqued my interest even more right um and it is sort of sad in a in a way because um, he, he passed away in 2014, I think. Um, so the, the overlap of when I sort of could have actually been in contact with him is so close, right? Um, but life circumstances just didn't um, make it happen that way, I guess. Um, yeah, but so what was that process like? It was um, just a lot, a lot of planning. Um, some scores are rental, some are um, not in um, print at all a court like so the last cd has a great um quartet for that's the same as the the bowling suite uh, the jazz trio with flute um, and then there's a second flute quartet that uses all the way from piccolo to contrabass flute um, but those on his website it says incomplete and not published and then um troy who you know, he told me that, oh, no, but he has a book from Castoret that says it has been performed. So then I'm like, okay, so now I have to, I have to find this, right? So I got in touch with his widow. His widow went through his entire study, found the handwritten scores that's like not very easily readable. Oh. So I had to get somebody to put that into music notation. Um, you know, and it's, and then also it's sort of this whole thing of, because it's all different chamber musics and different, chamber music settings and different musicians that have to fly from all over the country because I'm sort of like pulling in favors from friends you know <laughs> um and so it's it was yeah it was a it was a very good process um to learn what goes into contract negotiation royalty um you know just booking space um just being organized for one yeah. um but then also just sort of like getting to know a composer because th this is works that you know span like many many years you know many decades actually right and so just as my playing changed as i was recording over three years um, <laughs> yeah it's interesting to see sort of like how his compositional style changed and then you have to decide which track goes on which cd and it's just um and how like how to convince naxos to actually publish it because there, that was the only label that i was sort of interested in because that's sort of what they do right like it um and so just getting that taken care of was the biggest headache, <laughs> you know? Um, you yeah, so it was, in the end? we'll say again. How'd you convince them in the end? Um, <laughs> if you want to know the real truth, it is, I just went to the big boss because I wasn't getting responses from other people. So I was like, but see, that's, yeah, that's, um, I was emailing all the quote unquote right people and I just wasn't getting, um, feedback or the response that I needed and so I just emailed the CEO and I just said I want to do this project and then within like an hour I had an answer from the people that yeah that I needed to get an answer from um, but yeah so so it was it was a really amazing learning curve um, I grew a lot especially the etudes the etudes are really difficult if you um, play them at the tempos that's and that was the thing like I I wanted to, that's also why it took three, three and a half years because I didn't want to rush it and just sort of like have it out there to have it out there. But I really wanted to 
do the music justice. So if he wrote, you know, 164 for the quarter, like I was going to try my very best yeah. <laughs> to get to 164 for the quarter, you know? Because you're uh, like, a, your recording is a reference now. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so it was fascinating. And it's also, it's great because now I have a new flute. So it's something to look back on and be like, oh, that was my old flute. Oh yeah, my yeah. new flute can't really do that. Like my new flute sound kind of, you know, it's sort of, it's a nice little, little memory in, <laughs> in the past. If he was still around today and you, you could ask for his uh, guidance or ask him any question, what would you talk to him about? Um, you know, it's funny because I, in the process of trying to find these scores, you know, especially the ones that's not published, um, I, I pretty much spoke to every living, breathing flute player in Paris um, that, and finally got to, to Martine, his widow. Um, and every single person that got back to me, the very first, first of all, I was very grateful that I had five years of French in high school because I don't know how I would have gotten through this if I didn't. I was very broken French, but um, every single person that responded back to me, like their opening line was something always along the same vein of, Oh, Mr. Castoret was the most wonderful man. Like, oh, he had such an amazing sense of humor. Oh, he had, you know. Um, and so, and I think that's also why I'm drawn to his music. You know, like they're just, they're, it just seems like we would be fast friends, if that makes sense, you know? Um, because out of experience commissioning people, um, composers I am really drawn to, they sort of write like they, are I don't know if that's the right <laughs> sentence <laughs> construction, but you know they um, their personality really shines through um, in their music, right? And so usually people I commission, I end up becoming really good friends with because it's sort of it, I can just tell we're going to get along, I guess. Yeah, we can always ask them to tell you a joke if you saw. Yeah, it. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I, I also would kind of ask him because he had you know he won prizes, he gets. I just I just kind of. I guess I would ask him is why aren't you, because, you know, if you look at his dates, you know, there are other composers in the food repertoire that achieved a lot more um, fame and notoriety, if you would, you know? Um, so I, I guess I would kind of pick his brain about how he just went about, um, and I think I know what the answer would be because it's just about the music, it's not about the fame, but it's, um, I'm just always curious, like why he didn't push harder for, you know, to get his work out there, right. you know? Yeah. Well, I bet he'd be really proud of your project. And you said you recorded some of it with your new flute. Um, can you? Um, no, I, I only got my new flute um, about uh, a month ago, actually. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How has it been? <laughs> it's good. I, I just recorded. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I just recorded for the Bach Festival at UMass Amherst. Um, I had to record the Partida and uh, the BWV 1079, the Trio Sonata. Um, I think it's 1079. Um, and it's interesting because it's like it's it's going on a first date with somebody, you know, like you're, I think I know this flute. And then you get in the recording session and you're like, oh, okay, that response. <laughs> we all sort of have our comfort zones, right? Right. 
um, where you know what'll work in what scenario. And then you go into that zone and you're like, oh, the flute is not, because it's a different flute. The flute is not reacting the way. So it was sort of an interesting um, experiment, but I do love, love this instrument um, a lot. And it's, it's, I think I finally found the instrument that gives me everything I'm looking for, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm yeah, people are probably curious what we're talking about. It's a Haynes, right? A Haynes. Yes. Yes. I'm a Haynes artist. Um, and I've been playing a Haynes um, fusion out for many years. Um, and then a few years ago, I, I kept the fusion out body, but I switched to a 19.5K gold head joint. And then um, I finally sort of took the plunge and. Um, or I should say I found a buyer for my, <laughs> for my fusion out body. Uh, is that hard to let go of like your old baby, the, the instrument that kind of got you through so much? Is that hard to let go? You know, not for me. And it's, I guess it's just sort of like in sync with, I'm a firm believer that um, everything in life is directional, right? You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. I don't think there is a stagnant right if you feel like you're stagnant you're probably moving backwards is my philosophy <laughs> right yeah. um and so for me it's like there's a reason why i fell in love with the 19.5k and yes we have great memories together with the old flute <laughs> in russia and you know like where like all the places i've traveled and yeah. i have this Casa red cd project that i recorded on it and um but at the end of the day it's like you know um I did, I, I'm always looking for what's next, I guess. I'm, I'm very adventurous in that way, I think. So um, for me, and the thing is too, it's, it's a private student that bought it. So it's it sort of stays in the family. If that yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pass it down. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, well, so now I just have a, now I'm playing just old 19.5K. Yeah. Well, uh, I look forward to your performances and, and to hearing you on that flute. And thank you so much for, for joining me today. It was really great to get to chat with you and get to know you better. And yeah, uh, yeah hopefully we'll get to see you someday soon in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Katie. You're very <laughs> welcome. Bye-bye. Okay,